this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Michael Usim. Thank you for being here, Michael. We appreciate you on the show. Joe, really great to be here, and same to TJ. This episode, we are focused on excellence as a leader and really getting granular on those specific behaviors that separate the good from the bad, those that thrive and strive and soar. With this in mind, we couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than Mike. So TJ, why don't you dig in a little more and tell our audience a bit more about Michael? Yeah, thank you for that, Joe. Michael Usim is Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management and McNulty Leadership Program at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. His university teaching includes MBA and executive MBA courses on management and leadership, and he offers programs on leadership and governance for managers in the United States, Asia, Europe, and Latin America. He works on leadership development with many companies and organizations in the private, public, and nonprofit sector, and that's why we asked uh, Michael to be on the show today. Get ready, folks. Uh, Michael has authored uh, co-authored and co-edited more books than many of our leaders uh, will read in the next six months. And that's saying something because our listeners are avid readers. So here we go. He's the author of The Leader's Checklist, The Leadership Moment, which you've heard from us about before, Executive Defense, Investor Capitalism, Leading Up, and The Go Point. He's also the co-author and co-editor of Learning from Catastrophes, He's the co-author of The India Way, Leadership Dispatches, Boards That Lead, and The Strategic Leaders Roadmap. Fortune Makers, The Leaders Creating China's Great Global Companies, came out in 2017, and then Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy in 2018, and Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption. That's also a 2018 publication. That's one that I think everybody should pick up. Other than The Edge, which we're going to talk about today, his latest book, we're going to dig deep into this. Mike is also the co-anchor for a weekly program called Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio Channel 132. It's a business radio powered by the Wharton School. Okay, Michael, we want to dive into this conversation about leadership, about learning to lead, and really, like uh, Joe said earlier, what sets good leadership apart from bad leadership? In your newest book, The Edge, you feature tremendous leaders, CEOs who faced serious challenges, yet they thrived. You describe how these leaders essentially had to develop new skills to face the issues that they were having, um, and they came to the edge. And rather than falling off the cliff, they soared. So let's start there. Can you describe some of the characteristics of leaders and what set them apart to adapt and run forward when others might have otherwise, you know, met their match. 
Well, TJ and Joe, thanks for the good welcome to the show. And to pick right up on TJ, your reference to the book called The Edge, I want to quickly add in the subtitle, which is very ironic. The subtitle is How 10 CEOs Learn to Lead. It's ironic because we assume, of course, anybody who gets into the corner office has pretty well learned how to do everything on the way to getting there. But the point I um, ultimately um, pursued in this particular book, after talking with a number of people who run primarily private enterprise, is that that act of knowing where you're going, of figuring out how to get there, of how to execute around your vision and your strategy, um, there's no time to relax in thinking about what you're doing and how you're doing it, because what got you here definitely won't get you there. And what that phrase, which is circulates around, uh, means in this case, the kind of leadership that brought, for example, uh, the chief executive to run Vanguard Group, who I spent some time with and is featured in one of the chapters, a person named William McNabb, uh, as he took over Vanguard, one of the world's largest investment managers, my guess is many of your listeners probably have a lot of their assets sitting right there at Vanguard, and Bill McNabb was in charge of everything. It's up to over $6 trillion in total assets. Anyway, as uh, Bill took the helm a couple of years back, he said to himself, I cannot lead like my predecessor. It's a different era. My predecessor was great. My predecessor, predecessors, predecessor was no less than Jack Bogle, one of the great pioneers of the investment management, management industry. But to get to the same, uh, the main point here, uh, Bill McNabb decided, as did the nine other people I feature in the book, that uh, what got them into the corner office uh, was a platform, but insufficient for ensuring that the firm would continue to prosper in the future. And thus, how 10 CEOs learn to lead the subtitle is really about renewing your leadership once you're there. Mike, can we dig into that a, a little more? What do you think gives them really the insight, even the humility, if you would, to recognize that need, that they're not arrogant, they understand yeah. the fact that what the skill set they have may not um, work in the modern era in which they're becoming the CEO and, and running their division. What do you attribute that insight, that foresight, or maybe even perceptual acuity to? Yeah, Joe, it's a really good question. It's a question we all ought to be asking. Uh, how the heck in our, at our moment in life when we're responsible for a community group or maybe a, a, a even a protest movement, certainly a company, maybe a, um, a city, that we need, in my view, a blend, a pretty big blend. I tend to end up with 15 or 16 really important capacities of leadership. You have to be a visionary by definition. You've got to have a strategy to go with that by definition. You have to have a purpose if anybody's going to want to go with you, again, by definition. On your particular point, uh, a lot of ways to put it in, in the terms that I've kind of stumbled on, we want everybody, ourselves, you, TJ, you, Joe, me as well, everybody, to be a really active learner on behalf, on behalf, this is the key point, 
on behalf of the people you're trying to take to a more promised land. It's not learning for its own sake. It's not learning. It's not about you for your own sake. It's never about you. It's always about the, the group that you're going with and how to get them there. So uh, humility and a, in particular, this is the subtext of this uh, new book, the ability to kind of reinvent your leadership for the area you're in. And just to give you an illustration of what that means, I did profile, for example, the chief executive of a, uh, a very large regional bank on the East Coast of the US, it's called WSFS. And the leader, a person named Mark Turner, the CEO, uh, concluded that uh, he's in the corner office. He knows a lot about leadership. I've spent a lot of time with you and I can confirm that uh, by just direct observation. But he also concluded that what led his regional bank to expand considerably was gonna be different in the next five or 10 years. And thus, here's the learning moment. He took a three month, we would call it a sabbatical love to have three months of uh, academics, love the idea of sabbaticals, rarely seen elsewhere. Uh, and not that we're gonna go off and loaf, but we uh, give up our responsibilities. And that's exactly what Mark Turner did. He gave everything to his number two person. The board reviewed and approved this. Then Mark set out on a three month, what he called a learning tour. Like what's going on, not just in banking, but in many companies that have some kind of a combination of, of technology and physical presence. So he spent time three days, in fact, at Walmart, trying to understand from the top people at Walmart, how does Walmart sell online and in stores at the same time? Spent time at Apple, same thing. Spent time at 47 other companies, returned to his headquarters and said, uh, hey, hey, everybody, uh, I've, I've seen the future. That's my three month learning tour. And my leadership is going to be different from my predecessor because now it's a different era. Uh, we have to get to our customers via the web. I think a certain generation wants to spend no more than five minutes making a deposit or even taking a loan out from a bank online. But others uh, love to walk into a branch and actually talk to a banker. So with that learning moment, as chief executive, he didn't know everything. He uh, retooled where the bank was going. It's made a dramatic stride since. Uh, and so much of that leadership came out of the learning tour. I can't recommend that for everybody because I think most of us are not gonna get a three month leave of absence with full pay. But the basic idea is to be a continuous learner through your adulthood um, in whatever you're doing because what it's gonna take to lead next five years is unequivocally different from the last five. Yeah, I take a lot from that, Mike. I mean, it's a there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the leader as the chief learner. Obviously, we're not going to get that three months. Uh, not all of our listeners are able to then just drop what they're doing and take the three months. But we can develop the the learning muscle. Like I can reach here just right in my own grasp on organizational learning, Chris Argus. And I wonder though how you the leader comes about that. So like either it's in the learning culture of the organization or they have an epiphany or how do you get to a point where you decide I got to drop yeah. everything for three months and learn or else we're not going to be able to yeah. lead for the future. I mean, what brings somebody to that? Yep. 
So TJ, uh, just to reinforce one of your specific points there, most of us are never gonna have that sabbatical, but we gotta invent other ways of indeed uh, being a continuous uh, learner. And uh, it's varied, but it's ultimately, in my view, self-imposed. And to make that point, I actually draw on a book by a professional colleague, uh, Ermina Ibarra is her name. She wrote a great book a couple of years ago that makes the following argument. This comes from her own observations of many people who are leading in business and beyond. The most important element going into your leadership, my leadership, anybody's leadership, <clears throat> in her view, and I subscribe to it, is a self-conscious decision to accept the responsibility to make a difference in the lives of others. Doesn't have to be a big deal, but you accept the leadership of a small office of five, or in some cases, I've interviewed people who have uh, over 100,000 employees, whatever the number, to decide you're gonna make a difference. And then a element of humility, recognizing most of us were not born that way. Maybe there are a few exceptions. I've often thought Nelson Mandela just seemed to be a natural leader, a natural born leader is a phrase we sometimes use. But for most people, it is, I think almost everybody, it is an acquired skill set, hard to get, important to acquire it. And just to break that down a little bit uh, into maybe three more tangible components, lots of research and lots of experience says that the most important uh, well, let's start with the least important. The least important of three avenues for becoming the leader that you want to, you've committed to, and now you've got to become one, you weren't born with it, is to make your uh, life a classroom. So let's look around us. Uh, let's look at mentors. Let's look at people who are heroes, or some maybe even heels. Uh, let's read history. If you don't want to read history, at least watch the History Channel. Uh, to study some of the great figures, Nelson Mandela among them in history, not to emulate them, not to copy them, to, but really taking that as a classroom. More important than that, number two, is to, over your lifetime, and my guess is every person tuned into this particular uh, webinar has done this many times over, gather around you really good mentors and coaches could be totally informal, it doesn't really matter in my view, but have them work with you or draw from them for you, what are your strengths and also what are your blind spots? We have to learn to get beyond those blind spots. But then number three, Joe and TJ, is literally the act of getting out of your office and doing it. And again, the research terrain confirms repeatedly that one of the best ways to master the art of leadership is to take it on, make decisions, try to lead people, learn from mistakes. The after action review is totally vital there. And it's for that reason, by the way, that at my school, I'm involved in the leadership programs of the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we take our students, MBA students, to spend a week in Antarctica of all the strange places. We've long taken groups of um, over 100 of our MBA students to spend the day with the US Marine Corps Officer Candidate School, Quantico, Virginia. 
Uh, speaking of getting out of your comfort zone, <laughs> that happens in Antarctica. It's very cold. Or with the Marine Corps, you've got drill instructors breathing down your neck. And at the end of that experience in Antarctica, it's a week with the Marine Corps. It's, uh, it's a little less than two days. What's really, really important then is to reflect on what you learned that's going to change how you're going to lead tomorrow. That's the after action review. Anyway, uh, summary point is uh, leadership is an acquired skill set, hard to really hard to get. But uh, we've been on a, um, a journey for the last uh, 15 or 20 years now, believing we can do it. And we recognize it's hard to do it. But the people I featured in The Edge all had their own method, including that learning tour, to improve their own leadership skill set to not only lead now, but especially to lead in the future. Mike, thank you so much for that. Just for accuracy's sake, can you repeat the name so we can put that in the show notes of the individual you mentioned? So I, uh, this is in reference to WSFS, uh, the bank. Yeah, we got that with Mark Turner. I was thinking Imad Bar. Was that the name? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Herminia with an H, but it's pronounced oh, Herminia. Uh, so it's Ibarro, I-B-A-R-R-O. Excellent. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, hey. always, we always love to link that into the show notes, and people yeah. love to dig into that. And if you wouldn't mind, we're going we're gonna to move on to, to our one thing series questions. But before we do that, can you describe just real quick, as I know people will be fascinated and TJ and I will definitely get some hate mail if we don't dig into this, the Antarctica experience and then the Quantico experience. This is almost like full immersion you're talking about. So they're uh, to Total immersion. Wow. So this is to get them out of their comfort zone get them in a totally different environment to learn more about themselves and leadership? Yeah, Joe, I'm going to pick up in particular, and I think your, your second from last sentence there, getting people out of their comfort zone, in my professional opinion, is maybe the best single act to take to understand better what you still need to add into your leadership repertoire. There's a second part to that. <laughs> We want to get out of our comfort zone by going, in this case, uh, for a week in Antarctica. How could, how could that be more different, um, especially for people who don't plan to do that again? <clears throat> We're not going to become explorers. We're not looking for the South Pole. But by getting away from the here and the now, and in my view, often the more different, the better, we can, with a sometimes even just sudden lightning strike insight, say, oh my gosh, here's where I failed when I was going through a, a kind of an obstacle course with the U.S. Marine Corps. It's exactly what happens on a trading floor in New York. I just didn't quite see it until I saw it in other clothing. So really vital um, to a lot of ways to make that happen. Really vital, though, to find ways of looking away from home. Mark Turner of WSFS Bank went to Walmart. What could be more different? but sometimes looking way, way, way away is the best way to see what's at home. It's an excellent point. And I don't, I don't want to overlook it or, or our audience not to 
take a moment to recognize this is one primary reason on an education podcast with our primary audience being educators. We invite, you know, individuals who study business or business leaders, really, Mike, to your point, to get them to think a little different, to get them to understand for some of the answers in education, we may need to go outside of our walls to find them. And it, it doesn't mean we're not doing things well or we can't learn. It's just that the different perspective is what will open up our eyes to maybe new opportunities. Yeah, it's a great point. And maybe to reinforce it, I've concluded that uh, as a lifelong teacher in a business school, that one of the best ways for people to have one of these moments of like sudden insight into what they're doing that's the right thing to lead people or maybe where they're coming up short is to get away from their own setting, either metaphorically, we do cases, for example, or even physically by spending time with people in a different industry or in the case of Antarctica, a different continent. And that it has the effect of freeing up the mind to reflect on what's really important. And then our job as instructors, we go with the students as we head down to Antarctica, for example, or in the US Marine Corps experience, part of our job is to translate. So here's what you've seen with a what's called a fire team in the US Marine Corps, a group of five Marines, or in our case, five MBA students, going through some incredibly rigorous uh, physical um, challenges for them to see how, oh my gosh, here's one example. In fact, uh, I was responsible for my fire team and I thought I was the big leader of the team. And I literally failed to hear what some of my teammates were saying as a better solution to the problem. I thought I was the big boss and the Marine Corps instructor, uh, in fact, I've been in that very role, and the Marine Corps instructor said to me, Mike, you know, you've got some good ideas there, but you really blew it when it came to hearing even better ideas from your other four team members. So I, I teach the topic, but I came up short on that one. And that's the whole point, is to get ourselves out of our comfort zone. Um, and the more different the zone, the more discomfort there is to see what's really important back at home. Powerful story. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. I'm sure we all would have a, a lot to learn and grow there. Let's switch gears a little bit. And you've already mentioned um, some incredible individuals. Is there a specific person or group, Mike, that you follow for either knowledge or as a source of inspiration? And where could we find them? Yeah, here's my recommendation on that. There, there are many sources. One I've often come back to for my own further leadership development, I'm, I'm in the same game as all of us, is the chief executive of Progressive Insurance. Her name is Patricia Griffith. She's known as Tricia Griffith. And most people would not know her name, although a couple of years ago, she was on the front of a Fortune Magazine story as the CEO in the Fortune 500 of the year. And the story said the growth rate of Progressive was more than what even Apple was demonstrating. And that led to Tricia Griffith's presence on the front uh, of the story here. 
the C, the, the Fortune CEO of the year. That's a big deal. Progressive, um, many of your uh, listeners, no doubt, are progressive in, uh, customers, maybe even you, for automobile insurance, whatever it may be. But uh, having walked around the headquarters area with Tricia Griffith and having seen her on many occasions in public, she to me is the epitome of the kind of boss we're gonna need in the future, which is not the big boss. She's the antithesis of the big boss. So for example, uh, she said, let's walk down to a certain area to attend a, to an event she was gonna, she invited me to join. And I, I think it was up on the, uh, we were coming down maybe from the fourth floor. She said, let's not take the elevator. I always walk the staircase. I said, that's a bit odd. And she said, yeah, when I'm in the staircase, I meet people. How's it going? What, what's happened to that uh, child of yours that was homesick for a while? Uh, when she appears before large crowds, there's no riser, no lectern. She's just like one of the 500 people in the room. She cultivates that in the best sense of cultivation. She is the antithesis of the big boss. And that is actually what I focus on in featuring her in this book, The Edge. Because I happen to believe, uh, looking at many, many companies, that the era of the big boss may be most epitomized by the famous Jack Welch at GE, who would rule from on high, very authoritative in style. I think the style that Tricia Griffith has cultivated or has built in herself, not self-consciously, it's a part of it is just who she is, of uh, connecting with people, of sitting down with employees over lunch, um, and not carrying around your big title, but simply saying, look, I'm with you, is part of what <laughs> helped the 40,000 progressive employees step forward and, and deliver amazing growth in an industry we often don't think of as a growth industry, uh, automobile and beyond insurance. So I mentioned Joe and J TJ, her, her name and, and her persona is a very for me, inspirational source. That said, I happen to think that if we can find five or maybe 10 people out there whose leadership historically or contemporarily we really, really in value, uh, we value and we want to embrace, I think it's one of the best methods for people to think about not to copy them, but to draw from them what's going to be vital in your own life over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, thank you for that, Mike. It's great. Um, it's great that we're thinking outside of what we normally would go to in terms of an insurance company. It was awesome that you described some of the characteristics that have led you to be inspired by her. Um, and then just wonderful advice to say, look, if we want to build the archetype of the leader we need to be, we need to get those five to 10 people who have the skills that we want to emulate and figure out what we can learn from them. So awesome advice. Our, our listeners are going to really enjoy that. Thank you. Let me, um, let me ask you this question. What's one thing that you think people should try to do on a regular basis um, that might make a difference in their day or life? Hmm. So TJ, I'm going to be a little bit ironic on this uh, question as well. I happen to believe that we should look at leadership as a 360 in reverse. 
So a 360, most of your listeners have probably gone through one. We ask our boss, our, our peers, our subordinates, and then ourselves about our own leadership. We get good feedback about our strengths and our blind spots. Pretty standard in uh, even the public sector now to do 360 feedback. And my guess is most people listening have been through that at least once, if not annually. That said, it says to me that we tend to still think of leadership as something that we need to be better at vis-a-vis our subordinates. Leadership, if you go to the dictionary, it says helping people who are working for you and with you uh, to get to a better place. Maybe a more competitive place if you're in the private sector. But I actually happen to think that leadership ought to be thought of as a 360 in reverse in the sense that we not not only need feedback from people above us, next to us and below us, we actually need to help lead the people next to us and above us, not just below us. And with that said, I think we often overlook that. I regrettably overlooked that in my own case. So I'm I'm part of the problem, if you will. Uh, And I think it's useful to take a pledge to not manage your your boss, that's a different topic. Uh, It's important, I happen to teach that in some of my coursework, but to lead your boss in the sense that some days your boss is hard pressed to get her or his job done, or they're not thinking strategically, they're about to walk off a cliff. And I happen to think that this is one of the most difficult aspects of leadership, but to put it in a phrase, And that is to learn how to lead up, help people above you achieve what the enterprise or the protest movement or the hospital or the community needs, even if they are not. It's not a criticism of the the person above us. It's just a recognition that we're all human. And there are some days when they can use your help in getting their leadership into place. It's a very interesting take. Mike, because I think some people would love to put that in a bucket of being critical or the bosses and getting something done. How you describe it, I think, goes back to what you described also with Trisha Griffith. We're all a part of this, that this is an entity. So your boss is human. They're doing a lot of work leading up almost is a form of compassion, as I hear you describe it as well. Totally, totally. It's a good way to put it, because that issue of compassion and passion, I think, is often underappreciated for for its requirement in leadership. Do people want to work for a non-passionate leader? Probably not. Do they want to work for a non-compassionate leader? Probably not. So let's put those right up there as, as among the, I tend to call it a checklist, among the essential, can't do without uh, qualities. And then once we've got that passion and compassion, two separate capabilities, I think we ought to look below us to make certain people are, are able to get their job with our passionate support, with our compassionate uh, appreciation for, for them and what they're doing for the enterprise, but also for people in that tier above you. They've got a hard day sometimes you're irritated because they don't maybe show you the respect you think you deserve or the promotion that you ought to have had. 
But with that said, it's not about that. It's about making certain that your pledge to help the company or the community or the country get to a better place requires that you help people above you get their job done. That said, it's hazardous. So it's really important to do it well and not have your, have your head handed to you on a platter as you try to reach up and it looks like you're overstepping yourself. Sound advice. Michael, this next question, this can be answered professionally or personally. Um, we've read your bio, um, very obviously at Wharton, very successful, a lot of um, publications, very influential. Um, what's one thing that you know or want to know or be able to do that you don't already? <laughs> Joe, it's such a good question. And I'd like everybody, uh, including TJ, to be thinking along with me as, as I offer up that. So uh, Joe, just to make certain I'm on, I'm on the same wavelength, what's one thing that I'd like to do better that I don't currently have the capability to do? And I will not go to the deplorable fact that I'm a terrible singer, can't dance all that well, um, but here's what I would like to do that I have not done. And that is uh, to help, I'll make it more, less personal than more personal. On the less personal side, um, I regret to say I've, uh, in my view, I've come up short on my calling in life, which is to help people become better at the task of leading a team, a division, an operation, a company, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough road to hoe. I've been working on that for a while. I work with, in a given year, several thousand people as students and mid-career managers, and I wish I could have more impact. And I'm working on that, so I've got an optimistic view that I'm, I'm getting better. I think the one thing I really want to do, see if this sounds uh, analogous to what you're thinking about, TJ, I still want to step on the top of Mount Everest. So there it is. That's a personal aspiration. Uh, it's not in the cards. It would lead to instant divorce if I even suggested the idea. Um, but uh, I think everybody, TJ and Joe, both of you, I'm sure too, have some personal aspiration, uh, unfulfilled yet and maybe never to be fulfilled but it's sort of a North Star. And I say that for on Mount Everest because it's, it's very difficult. Uh, it's very cold like Antarctica. Uh, it's, it is risky even if it's um, now a, often a guided sport. But I think that the issue of taking on a huge challenge like that is to be admired. And I haven't done that yet. I wish I had in my earlier years. Uh, and I hope everybody has a North Star like that, something they would really want to do personally. But to sum it up, the most important aspect of the question though is more on the impersonal side. And for that, just to reiterate it, I wish I, have, I wish I would have more impact in helping people acquire the kind of leadership capabilities that they do want. That's great. And it's it's not uncommon when we ask that question for somebody to have an aspiration like that. We've heard fly, like literally fly. We've heard fly a plane, jump out of a plane. A lot of things that leaders would like to do that um, 
that they haven't been able to do or maybe never will. So I'm glad that you, you put it that way. Um, and so that's also leads us to our next question in terms of what's one thing that has uh, led to or continues to support your growth as a leader. You talked about learning to lead. You just had embedded in the question before, helping uh, others to lead a team and learning to do that better. What, what has led to your growth? You know, TJ, two sides of that question. Let me take the negative side, uh, and by which I mean I've learned from sometimes terrible example, awful illustration. And I think we would all agree that sometimes when we've seen terrible leadership, we're appalled, and we really then carry that forward in an emotional sense. I can't believe leadership was so terrible. How did that happen? So that said, I, I think uh, uh, along the way, I worked with a company, just to make it more tangible, I worked with a huge company, 250,000 employees at the time, uh, of which the chief executive and a chief financial officer uh, <laughs> had become corrupt. And they're ultimately gonna serve time for their theft of company money. Uh, the company called Tyco International, this is some years ago, but when Enron went belly up and WorldCom uh, failed, within a few months, Tyco International also almost failed. And I was invited in, it was a privilege of my lifetime to work with the individual who had been hired by the board of directors to try to right the terrible wrongs inflicted by the top people in the past. His name is Ed Brain. Uh, today he runs DuPont, but then he ran, he came in as Tyco International replacement CEO. And uh, in learning what I learned about the problems therein, that he began to tackle problems with top management, problems with the board, certainly problems with the chief financial officer who was part of the problem deeply embedded in the corruption there. I have to say I learned more about the shortcomings of human behavior than I think anything else I have ever done. So it's just a recommendation to your listeners to pay attention. Sometimes we wanna kind of shield our eyes against disaster, but in some disasters, setbacks, catastrophes, uh, there is a lot to be learned. For example, I, I spent time in Chile trying to understand how Chile came back from one of the world's most severe earthquakes a few years back. And I have to say, I learned enormously from spending time with the uh, people in Santiago and beyond about how they did that. It also relates to the rescue of the 33 miners, which I studied as well. But on the positive side, and I recommend both, I, I think again, a good way to steady your, your your agenda to improve your leadership capabilities is to make, this is number one on that three item list I referenced uh, a little while back, find people, find companies, find community centers, maybe hospital ICUs you've been in where the leadership just caught your attention as extraordinary step back, ask yourself, what was it? Was it a charismatic person? Was it a culture that had been created? And my guess is <laughs> the answers are gonna be yes to all of those. It was some combination of individuals and then the, the culture of the moment. And ask yourself, 
once you spot those going beyond an academic focus here, what exactly created those capabilities and how the heck can I get some myself? So anyway, that's a long-winded uh, response there, but that those are my quick thoughts. Thank you so much, Mike. We're gonna wrap this up. And I, truly, I was entranced um, when you were, were talking and relating this so much um, to our daily lives and what we're doing and <clears throat> really as educators facing some of what we're facing and how do we move forward and thrive versus just, you know, survive. And so I really was deep in my own thinking there, which I think is a credit um, to you, what you're describing. Well, uh, Joe, can I just break in just before you go on? Uh, we're in the same business and I appreciate totally what the two of you are doing. And it takes a, a lot of us to help move the world towards a better place. So I just have to say, I really appreciate what you're doing because we're in the we're in the same club, same agenda. And I hear you saying it, it's for you, it's a calling. Certainly for me, it's a calling too. Anyway, sorry, back to you, Joe. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. Final question, Mike, to what's been a phenomenal interview. What's the one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? You know, it's a question I've often asked chief executives when I, for example, was doing the research on this book, The Edge, where I spent time with nine chief executives. And I've always asked them almost the identical question, or maybe two things. One is, what turns out not to be true when you got into office you thought would be true when you had finally become the chief executive? Uh, so what turned out not to be true? And then the flip side of that is, what has been surprising once you did get there that you would have never seen uh, coming in? But maybe taking up the, uh, the first one more than the second one, I think I hear uniformly, and I think this is true of me too, and I bet it's true of the two of you, that as you look into the lives of others that carry some responsibility, sometimes enormous authority. Some of the people I interviewed for this book, The Edge, uh, in one case, they had 140,000 employees, a market value of almost $400 billion. Uh, they really had to get that right because <laughs> if they get anything wrong, the impact on lives, on employment, on families, on customers was going to be enormous. That said, I often hear that when they finally got into the corner office or for those not in the corner office, but those with substantial responsibility, uh, you have an official title and an organizational chart and a history to build on, but nothing happens in your office if you say, let's get this done. So you've got 12 direct reports. You say, hey, I want this to happen. And then amazingly enough, nothing happens. Um, because we can give orders. Maybe this is the old leadership that we one time revered in places like GE or elsewhere. But I think today uh, we get things to happen because people believe in our purpose, our agenda, and us. We have to communicate who the heck we are before people are going to salute and say, great idea, boss. And thus, I, I do tend to hear 
that on arriving in a high position and getting into that high tower, uh, <laughs> there is less real authority there to get the job done until you have built your own credibility, your own presence, and your own top team through which you do get the job done. So I think we kind of, I think we kind of vaguely knew that uh, before we took a new job. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's striking how often people do single that out, and I would single that out too. That as I took a job in my, as I took my current job, uh, I was told to get out there and teach classes and conduct research, and it took me a little while to figure out that to have the authority to do that was not to get it done. So that's a way of saying that you got to create your leadership, extend your leadership, establish your leadership, even after you have a leadership title. It's a great place to wrap up, too, because I think the leaders who are listening to this are going to take a lot from that. Michael, in terms of their leadership teams, something that we espouse and just, you know, injecting the capacity within the organization and not always just, you know, barking those orders from the top. It's one thing to be visionary. It's actually a different thing for people to see the vision and how they fit into it. Totally, totally correct. I completely agree. Now, this has been a fantastic interview. We really appreciate you, your time. We know you're super busy. Um, is there anything else, Michael, though, that you would like to leave for the listeners, a request of them or a, a last nugget of wisdom? You know, I think I'll close on this. And that is in looking at people as I do in The Edge and earlier books, we earlier on talked about the leadership moment, which I published a few years ago. I'm always impressed as a, as a student of leadership on how it never comes down to one thing like charisma or in the old days, looking like a CEO cast in Hollywood. Uh, I've become convinced that it really does require some 10 or 15 or maybe even more capacities to ensure that people really wanna go with you on a very tough, pathway ahead. So we need to have a vision. We have to have a strategy to get there, a purpose behind it all. But we also have to honor the room on a regular basis, express our appreciation. We have to communicate our character. We've got to be a persuasive communicator. We've got to think strategically and act decisively. So I think the final point I would leave is that uh, lacking a sil silver bullet or a leadership pill a medication that will make you a leader, uh, it seems to take uh, a blend of at least 10, maybe even 15 separate capacities. We really have to learn them all. And a way to illustrate that, my guess is most of your listeners have had uh, a, a superior, a boss who was good at everything, but couldn't make a decision. And you went totally nuts. Everything else looked good. One of those mission critical items missing and there's no leadership ultimately there. So on the affirmative side, I think we all need a pretty good leader's mission critical checklist. That's great. Thank you very much for that and, and so much more from this episode. There you have it, everybody. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this one thing series on how leaders can develop new skills, 
learn and grow, reinvent their identity, and so much more with Michael Usim. I'll leave with this, honor the room. Thank you, Michael, for being with us. TJ and Joe, thanks. I love the questions. I really appreciated the dialogue. Best wishes for your program. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell. How do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor, with 30,000-plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Mm -hmm.